Well, for those of you who are counting, we're less than three weeks away from the day we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Now, for those of you who are procrastinators like me and like to wait till the last minute to do your shopping, that's bad news. For those of you who are children, you're like, it's too far away. Uh, and so we're thankful we can celebrate and take time to, pers uh, to personally and corporately celebrate the birth of our Savior. Jesus is a wonderful friend, and we thank God for him, and we thank the Lord for what he has done in bringing. When he came to the earth for the first time, he brought to us salvation. And we're so thankful for all that he has done. And we look forward not just to Christmas, but also we look forward to uh, his second coming as well. And Daniel 11 deals with the second coming. Uh, and so as we look at the first coming in, the, in just a few weeks, we're going to look at the second coming of Christ. And, and I'll just give you a forewarning uh, this morning. Uh, this is, uh, there's, there's a lot of information I'm going to share with you today from Daniel 11. I'll try not to overwhelm you uh, and give you just the facts, amen, and just give you some of the important things. Uh, but there is just a lot that God gives to Daniel. Remember, Daniel 11 is a part of a three-chapter series. From Daniel chapter 10, we looked at last week as Daniel prayed and God answered that prayer with a revelation from an um, angel. And that angel shared with him some things, uh, and those things are found in chapters 11 and 12. And as we look at the final aspect of Daniel, uh, here we're seeing this one final vision and it all reminds me and points back to the importance and the value of prayer right now more than anything else in our church and in our community that we be people of prayer. That we choose to say, God, I want to dedicate my life to prayer. And that's this uh, thing that God has shared in Daniel 11 is a, is, was born out of a season of prayer in Daniel's life. And truly, we're in a season where we need prayer. And uh, I, I just today, I look at just physical aspects, and we see many of our church family that are out because they're sick. And I just remind you that we need prayer. Not everyone has COVID. Let me just say that. Uh, we have a few that have the COVID, but most of, most of our folks are just being, uh, out of an abundance of caution, being careful today uh, and being home. But as we look at Daniel chapter 11, God reveals to us some truth about future conflicts. Now, for Daniel, they were future tense, all of them, in the sense that he, God shares. But for, for us, only one of the conflicts that he shares is going to be future. And as we look at this, wars, conflicts, and these types of things have been a part of humanity since the very beginning, since the fall of Adam and Eve. We, we remember in the Garden of, uh, of Eden that man sinned against God and rebelled against Him. As a result of that, sin, sin came and, and uh, became a part perpetually of humanity. And the Bible says in Romans 5.12 that wherefore is by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so the death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Listen, we're all here sinners as a result of that decision in the garden uh, just by birth. The exception is Jesus Christ because he was born of a virgin. He did not have the sin nature. Now, what happened was is they had children, Cain and Abel, and and, uh, and Eve looked at Cain and she thought, this is going to be the Savior that we were looking for. Genesis 3.15 is the prophesied Savior. But the reality was Cain was a sinner, just like Abel was a sinner. And then we saw the wars and conflicts even begin in that relationship. And, and if you're a parent of more than one child, you know what it is to have wars and conflict. Amen? Okay, we know what it is to have wars and conflict. Y'all may be perfect, but we're not in the Bingham household. And, and especially, it's like where two or more children are gathered together, there will be conflict in the midst. 
And those kids, they, they get together and boy, they, they have conflict. Even this morning, 6.58 this morning, I hear a commotion upstairs in, in our house. And I just remind myself, they're just sinners. Amen. <laughs> just little sinners. But the reality is, wars and commotion. Cain rose up and he slew Abel. Uh, he lied about it. He was cast out. And for 6,000 years... There has been nothing but uh, destruction, a man's desire to conquer, a man's desire to devour. This is the bloodthirsty nature of, and history of mankind. A history that describes really in all of its gory detail, the, uh, the 1 John 2.15, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life played out here. Listen, the enemy is sin. And if we don't hate sin, we're in trouble. And as we look at this final conflict today in Daniel chapter 11, I'm reminded that sin is really what, what has caused all of these issues that's going on in, in the book of Daniel here and what they're experiencing. Last week, we had an opportunity to see the reality of a spiritual conflict, and they saw this and that took place in the heavenlies and the, the priority that we need to place on prayer in Daniel chapter 10. And today we see in Daniel 11 that the majority of this chapter, though it covers history for us, was all future for Daniel. And it's in this that becomes stunningly clear that the predictions of God in Daniel 11 were, were played out in history almost perfectly. And though I don't have time to just lay them all out and say, this is exactly what happens and spend the next two or three hours doing that for you, uh, I, I want to just bring enough of the historical evidence uh, to light that it will help solidify our faith so that what we see that is future tense will help us anticipate the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Daniel chapter 11 demonstrates God's omnipotence and His omniscience in so many ways because we see that God shows to Daniel with stunning clarity, clarity that is so particular, clarity that is so fine and in minute in the details that oftentimes people look at the book of Daniel and they think, well, this obviously was written after this history had taken place. It was not, couldn't have been written by Daniel because the historical things that he brings out are too closely related to what happened in reality. But let me just say that Jesus Christ validated the authorship of Daniel. I trust the Lord. I trust the Word of God. And if it says that Daniel was the author, then I'm going to trust that Daniel was the one that gave it to us. I remind you that the God who created all things is the same God that we worship and the God that knows what happens next. Listen, God is not limited by time. We're limited by time. Uh, you know, every, every morning I feel rushed in the urgency of the hour, but I'm reminded that, that God is not limited by the time restraints that we are. He's transcendent of that. He's been, he's existing eternity past and eternity future. Time is irrelevant for him. And so you say, Lord, uh, when are you going to work this out? You know, I'm running on a clock. He doesn't have one of those. And we just trust him in his timing is perfect in our life. But as we look at all of this, I remind you that the same God who created all things is the same God that can also tell us what will yet happen. 2 Peter 1.21 reminds us of this truth, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Let me just say it like this. For the prophecy didn't come because Daniel wanted it to, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So these are God's holy words given to Daniel to show that His people would endure. 
And so today we view these and we know that he is preparing to deal one final time specifically and especially with his people Israel. And so as we look at this, we see this incredible story that's uh, history that's displayed in Daniel 11 and the story of what will happen next. And so look at Daniel with me, chapter number 11. And verse number 1 really ties into chapter 10. So we're going to start in verse number 2 as, as we look here at, at the scriptures. It says, And now I will show thee the truth. Behold, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all. And by his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. And a mighty king shall stand up that shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven and not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up even for, those, uh, for others beside those. Let's stop and pray there today. Father, thank you for this opportunity to read your word. And as we just have laid some groundwork for the message this morning, I recognize that, Lord, that there is a lot of information. And I pray that, Lord, you would remove the hindrances of distraction, help the Holy Spirit of God to teach. And, Lord, as we look at the historical significance of the things that you've laid out for us, help us to have faith and, uh, and trust in what you're about to do in the world around us. And God, as we lay out some of these things, I just pray, Father, that, that you would convict hearts today, better still, uh, questioning, are you right or wrong? Is the Bible trustworthy or not? That today, that people would put their faith in the Word of God, and as a result, they would put their faith in Christ, who is your perfect Word. We praise you, and we thank you, and ask you now that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Daniel 11, I just want to kind of give you a brief uh, glimpse at the conflicts of the past. Because as we look at these things, we're going to seek here uh, confidence for the future and for what God has in store next. And so we're going to look at a great conflict that's yet to come. But first, let's look at some things that happened in the past. And he deals with this here, starting in verse number 2, and he deals with this country of Persia. Now, I remember uh, that Daniel was taken as a captive of Nebuchadnezzar into the country of Babylon. Babylon was captured by the country of Persia. And now Daniel lives in a Persian-controlled uh, city. And so he has now lived through that uh, Babylonian uh, time, and now he's living in the time of Persia. If you go back to uh, Daniel chapter 2, you will remember that Nebuchadnezzar had this great dream, uh, this vision of this uh, statue of a man with a uh, head of gold, and we, we taught that and shared with you that God said that this is going to be the kingdom of Babylon, this great kingdom of gold, this head of gold. The next kingdom that would follow would be the kingdom of, of Medo-Persia. And this country was represented by that chest and arms of silver. And the third kingdom that would come would be this uh, country of Greece, which was represented by the torso of brass. And then there was the final kingdom, the fourth kingdom of, uh, that was represented by the iron legs. And so all of these things were seen in, Nebuchadne uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. And now we're going to, like a big funnel, we've got all this big information. And we're going to give you some fine tips here out of Daniel 11 and give you a little bit more detail about all that's going on in these prophecies and then he's going to give us some really good information about some things that are going to happen in the, the very final thing. Remember that statue had those ten toes at the bottom of it? Representation of the ten horns later. Representation of the Antichrist kingdom. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. But here let's, we're dealing with a country of Persia. That's what he deal, deals with first. And he says in verse 2, I will show thee the truth. There shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far greater than they all. So let me just first deal with these, what he's talking about here. 
historically, we understand that there were four notable kings that followed King Cyrus. The first one was Cambyses, uh, and the second one was Pseudo Smyrtus, which actually, the word pseudo means false. So he was really a false king because he was an imposter. He looked like the king's son, and he just called himself the king's son. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? So this was Cambyses, and then there was Pseudo Smyrtus, and then there was uh, Darius, and we remember him as, uh, as well. But there's Xerxes, as in Xerxes was seen in uh, the book of Esther, also known as uh, Hasarias. And so this, these are the four kings that Daniel is referring to here. They are yet future tense from this point in Daniel chapter 11. They had not happened yet. They had not transpired. But we know from historical fact, as well as from the Bible, that following Cyrus there were four kings that followed him. And King Xerxes was a mighty king. In verse number uh, 3, he says, A mighty king, and shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And verse number 2, I, I missed this part, And by him his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Grecia. So as we deal with verse 2, he's dealing with this fourth king. This fourth king, Ahasuerus, which was seen in the book of Ezra, or Esther. I'll get all these names right, I promise, at some point. Probably when I get to heaven. But this same king that was singing in Esther was a king that had amassed great wealth. And he desired to use his wealth to defeat Greece, but he couldn't. Because God had already painted the picture that Greece would be the next dominant kingdom. And so we have verses 3 and 4 that points to another great king that would come on the scene. So uh, Ahasuerus was destroyed, uh, and then in uh, verse number 3, we see the country of Greece begin to rise. It says, And a mighty king shall stand up, that shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And when he shall stand up, the, his kingdom shall be broken. I'm going to stop there real quick. As we look at verses 3 and 4, we see that these two verses describe Alexander the Great almost perfectly. Now, let me just, just remind you, we've studied a little bit about Alexander the Great in the past, so I'm going to bring some of that up to speed in case you weren't here with us then. He was one of the most remarkable generals, remarkable men who ever lived. Uh, he was able, uh, by the time he was 33, able to have control of, uh, from all of Europe all the way to India, a massive, massive amount of land. But when he died, he had no heir. Matter of fact, verse 4 mentions this. And when he shall stand up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, and west, and not to his posterity, not to his heirs, nor according to his dominion which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up even for others beside those. And so the Bible teaches that the kingdom would not go to his children. Alexander did have a couple of children, one illegitimate son, one legitimate son, but, uh, and then there was also a brother who was mentally handicapped. But all, uh, after Alexander's death, all three of these were murdered. And so these four generals who fought with Alexander took the kingdom and they divided it four ways. Here's a picture. And it kind of shows how it was all divided. There was four main areas. Macedonia, there was Asia Minor, there was Egypt, and there was Syria. And one of these generals ruled Egypt, which was to the south of Israel. Another ruled Syria, which is to the north, and out of Syria came the first king of the north. And from, uh, from Egypt, we say a king of the south. And we'll talk about that that's pretty significant for later what Daniel talks about, because these two and their successors made life miserable for the Jews. 
So if you've got an enemy on the south of you and an enemy on the north of you, and then you're stuck in the middle, okay? It's not like the squeezed in the middle Oreo commercial that was so pleasant back in the day. Squeezed in the middle. Okay, y'all didn't get it. But it was literally like a vice, and, and they just felt pressured and squeezed as both of these nations uh, came through Israel to war against the opposing factions. So we have a north versus south scenario. And, it, and starting in verse number 5, verses all, all the way through the verse 35, it describes the history of all that happens. Now, this is a lot of history, a lot of information that happens, and I'm not going to give you everything that I've been able to learn this week uh, through my preparation and study, because uh, for most of you, you might walk out of here thinking, I don't have a clue what I just heard. But I want to kind of give you a couple of glimpses of what happens through this time for the purpose of strengthening our faith in the Word of God, okay? To know that what, what God said would happen, happened. Okay, so that when we come to verse 36 and we're talking about the Antichrist and the battle of Armageddon, that when we come there, we can say what God says will, will happen, will happen. So we have confidence built upon what happened in the past that God's going to fulfill what happens in the future. Okay, so if you'll bear with me for a few minutes, I'll try not to drag this out too long. And I don't have a lot of pretty graphics, so you just have to bear with me. That's about the coolest one I have today. I'm sorry. But verse number 5 and 6, let's look there together. It says, And the king of the south shall be strong, and one of his princes he shall have, uh, shall be, and he shall be strong above him, and have dominion, and his dominion shall be a great dominion. And in the ends of the years they shall join themselves together, for the king's daughter of the south come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the power of the arm, neither shall he stand, nor his arm, but she shall be given up, and they uh, that uh, brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. Now, you read all of that, and you think, what in the world did you just read? Well, let me just kind of share with you what happens here. It's a soap opera. In, in every sense of the word, there is a lot of drama that goes on here. And so these two kingdoms, remember, north and south, the war against each other. In the time of, of the Jews, it was very common during uh, ancient times for kings to try to create a peace treaty with other nations through marriage. And so one king would say, I've got this lovely daughter. I want to create some peace and harmony. So why don't you marry my daughter and we'll have a little bit of unity in these, in these nations. King Solomon did that and he expanded the nation of Israel greatly. And he had peace with all these nations around him, but he had chaos in his home because he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know the wisdom of that, but I'm just telling you what happened. But in verses 5 and 6, so what happens is the, uh, the kings decided we want, to, we want to promote peace. And so that what they did was they exchanged a daughter. Now the problem was, was that uh, the king of Syria, uh, decided to, who decided to make this treaty with the king of the south, he, uh, he chose to marry this Egyptian daughter, if you will. And so this, the south's daughter goes to marry the king of Syria. But the problem is the king of Syria is already married. So he divorces his current wife. He marries the daughter of Egypt. And then the previous wife was jealous, so she had her murdered and all of, all of those. And so Antiochus did what every good man would do, and he took his first wife back. Well, she was still angry and bitter, so she poisoned him and he died. I told you, it's like a soap opera. 
And verse number 6, it says, In the end of the years they shall join themselves together. That's that joining for the king's daughter of the south shall come to the king of the north and shall make this agreement. That's what they were talking about here. And she shall not retain the power of the arm. Why? Because she was murdered. And then it goes on and it says, But she shall be given up, and they that brought her, and he that begat her, and he that strengthened her in these times. But out of the branch of her roots shall one stand up. And then someone else stands up in this chaos. Verse 7 the brother of the murdered Egyptian princess started another war with the king of the north. And this time he won. Egypt and Syria were again at each other's throats. The battle was fought right in the midst of Israel's soil. So it's like, you, it's like two nations, Mexico and Canada, are fighting a war right here in our backyard. Would that be a pleasant experience? No, I don't think that we would go for that, would we? Thank God for the Second Amendment. You know, and I think, about, I think about these things, and that's exactly what's going on in Israel's world and all that's going on. This, this king of the north, this king of the south, they're trying to regain the control. Remember, they were all united at once as one large Grecian empire, and they're trying to rebuild that. They're trying to bring that back together, but both of them want to be king. And so verses 10 through 19, I'm just going to uh, just very quickly go over some of the things that go, go on here. But let me just read a couple of verses here. But his sons shall be stirred up and shall assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overflow and pass through. Then shall he return and, and be stirred up even to his fortress. And so basically there's this back and forth and back and forth. One army of 75,000 from the north marches down and, and they do some destruction and some, some conquering. And then another army from 75, of 75,000 marches back uh, to the other country. It's back and forth. And this entire time in the history of Israel, they are stuck in the middle. And it's like Israel it becomes uh, oppressed through all of these things. Verse 11 says, And the king of the south shall be moved with choler, and shall come forth and fight with him, even with the king of the north, and he shall set forth a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into his hand. As we look at this and we look at history, it demonstrates that this Egyptian king came through Israel as a retaliation. Again, back and forth. In verse 13, though, we read that this king of the north returns again through Israel. Eventually, we see... That Antiochus, not Epiphanes, who we talked about a few weeks ago, there was about three of them, Antiochus the God, Antiochus the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus was determined to unite Syria and Egypt. So verse 17, there's another marriage agreement. This is historically, you can find this information, but it's right here in the Bible. It says, and he shall also set his face to enter with strength of his whole kingdom and upright ones with him, and thus shall he do and he shall give him the daughter of women, corrupting her, but she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. Now, this is what history teaches. He desired to, if you will, plant an enemy in the camp. He thought, I can get my daughter, I can give my daughter to the, the king. And as Antiochus uh, desires this, uh, this destruction of Egypt, he, he gives this daughter to, to the king and says, she will be my spy and report to me. The problem was... She fell in love with her husband, and she wouldn't betray him. And so that's what verse 17 teaches, and she, she shall not stand on his side, neither before him. All of this is played out beautifully in the Word of God and in history. But there's a fourth major king I want to point out here today, 
Uh, and, and so instead of going to all of these great details, I just want to jump to this last one. And this is a man we've already talked about. This is a, a fourth major king that we've already seen in Scripture. The Bible calls him vile. The Bible calls him contemptible. Uh, and uh, he was described as a madman by the Jews of his time. And this is Antiochus Epiphanes. We also mentioned that he was the forerunner, as a forerunner of the Antichrist. Look in verse number uh, 21 with me. It says, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and attain the kingdom by flatteries. Remember, we said he was uh, much of his life was a picture of what the Antichrist will do. The Antichrist will come in by flatteries. The Antichrist will come in by peace treaties and one, uh, win the uh, ability to rule over those ten kingdoms and ten, uh, ten toes or ten horns as Daniel describes them. And, but as we look at Antiochus Epiphanes, he was one of the most wicked and vile men who ever lived. He plotted his way into a place of power. And when he became king, he, became, he, he uh, tried to devastate the Egyptians, but he failed. He tried to, to uh, conquer the Romans, and he failed. And so eventually what he did was he turned his anger on the Jews, and it was in the Jews that we see uh, that, that they fought against Antiochus Epiphanes, and we saw the, the rise of the Maccabean Revolt. Which, you can, uh, which is read about in some courageous leadership by Judas Maccabees uh, in uh, what we call the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is not inspired. We don't call it God's Word, but it is historical. Uh, and so there are errors in it, but we're not... I'm, so I don't want you to say, Pastor told me, go home and read the Apocrypha. I just want to make clear that there are some things historically that we can learn from that. Now, all of this, we, we see all of this played out all the way through verse uh, 35. Verse 2 through 35 in Daniel 11 is all history past for us today. It was all history future for Daniel at the time. But there's a story about a man who uh, lived in Long Island, and he wanted a barometer. And he wanted so badly a particular kind of barometer. It was very expensive, something that he thought would be very good for him to have. And so he, he just, for years, he dreamed of owning it. So he just saved up all his money. And then uh, when he was able to afford to buy it, he called the catalog company and he had one sent out to him and he paid for this beautiful uh, barometer. When he got it home, he opened the package, looked at it, and it, on the barometer has a needle and it was pegged over on the hurricane indication. And he said, well, this thing's broken. So he does what every good man does when something's broken. He shakes it. Right, men? Amen. And if that doesn't work, you bang it a couple times trying to get it to work. Right? How many of you ever opened the hood and banged on something in there so your wife thought you knew what you were doing? Amen. Amen. <laughs> she doesn't know. What she doesn't know won't hurt her. And so, man, you're banging around. He's banging around on this barometer thinking something's wrong with it. And, hey, boy, he couldn't get it to work for anything. And so he sat down that night and he wrote a scathing letter to the, 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 the catalog company and said, I want my money back. You, uh, you, know, just, you sent me a terrible barometer. And he got up the next morning, was on his way to work, dropped it off at the post office where he worked in New York. And, and that evening as he got ready to go home, he got home and he went home. And guess what? Something tragic had happened. His barometer was missing. He thought, what happened to this silly thing? But worse than that, the whole house was missing because a hurricane had come through. You know, sometimes we look at events in history and Scripture and we choose what we will believe. We choose, well, I, I can't believe that. I can't believe the book of Daniel. That obviously is not right. This is obviously written sometime after these events. It's too close to be right. Or you choose to believe the barometer. 
You just believe God's Word and say, God wrote this two to three hundred years and gave this before these events ever happened because God is God. And there is no God like our God. There's no Lord like our Lord. And today as we look at Jesus Christ, we see in the Word of God, we see He fulfills these, uh, these prophecies perfectly. And we see that throughout Daniel, the book of Daniel, our faith can be unshakable because God is, a, is the God of all gods. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above anything we could ask or, or think. And so we, we think, as we confess here today, I just want to say that I stand with the Word of God. I'm not going to stand with these critical thinkers. I want to stand with God. I want to stand with His Word and be able to say, I rest assured in the Word of God, I'm confident in what He has taught us and what He's shared with us because it gives me confidence that what He shares later is also right. Because if I can't trust the book of Daniel, how can I trust that Jesus is the Messiah? If I can't trust the Bible from, from Genesis to Revelation, if I can't believe God's Word, and that's why uh, evolutionists are de desired to undermine the integrity of the, of the book of Genesis. Because if you can destroy Genesis, everything else goes by the wayside. Listen, I hold to the Word of God. I believe in the in infallible, inspired, uh, inerrant Word of God. And I just want to say that, that today my faith is built upon it not upon circumstances, not upon uh, new scientific uh, things, but most science, true science, will all point to the, the, the truth of the Word of God. Listen, I want to believe this. And I've seen that history proves it. I've seen that, that I can trust it in my life. And what oftentimes science is just discovering, God has revealed centuries before. So I said all that, and all of that is a lot of history. I understand that. But it's all for a purpose that it might build our faith in trusting and believing and knowing that God's Word is right so that when we read verse 36 through 45, we can trust Him too. So let's read that together. Let's see this coming conflict that's in the future. In verse number 36, And the king, now he turns his attention to the Antichrist. The king shall do uh, according to his will, and he shall exalt himself. And magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that which is determined shall be done. And neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces, and uh, a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange god." whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall, shall divide the land for gain. And at that time, at the end, shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him, like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and, and pass over. And he shall pass, excuse me, he shall enter also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon. And he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and upon the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all precious things of, of Egypt and Libyan forces, uh, excuse me, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas 
in the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. In this moment, in this point of the prophecy, this angel takes Daniel from about 200 years in the future to over 2,000 years ahead. Right now we're living somewhere in between there. Uh, you know, and so we see then that God is revealing as an other king. Another king that makes Antiochus Epiphanes look like a boy scout in comparison. A man whose uh, wickedness and vileness knows no bounds. This king will do as he pleases, for he will rule the world for a time. And he will bring persecutions, murders, hatred, and turmoil on a level that we have never seen before. He is the Antichrist. And Daniel talks about him, and he talks about this coming destruction, this coming battle with the Antichrist. So let's talk about this battle of Armageddon. Preparation, therefore, we're going to split this up in a few different groups as we look at the battle of Armageddon. It's preparation. We'll see some scripture also out of Revelation uh, in preparation for that. And so, uh, but let me just, let's just deal first with this preparation part. Reality is we're no stranger to war. Since the beginning of our country, we've fought wars. Uh, from the Battle of Independence uh, to the War of 1812, the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, there's World War I, World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Persian Gulf War, the War on Terror, and the list goes on and will continue to do so until Jesus Christ ends it. Scarcely has a generation passed in which we have not sent our young people into war. The Bible says that this final disaster will draw a curtain on all modern civilization is a, a, a war called the Battle of Armageddon. It will not just be a war, but a battle, a battle fought on different fronts, and preparation for that battle is going on now. There's only one thing that remains before the Antichrist begins his rule, and that is the disappearance of all true believers. When the church is raptured out, then we will see some of these next events happen. So the next thing that I'm looking for is not a war. The next thing I'm looking for is a rapture. Now, there may be war between now and then. That may happen. But the thing that I'm really looking forward to is the rapture. And I'm looking forward to it as a believer because, uh, because I know that I will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the good news. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. Amen. You know, we consider that today as a church. After that, though, will be a very devastating time on this earth. The Holy Spirit will be restrained in the sense that He will no longer be that controlling influence on evil. Literally, if I could say it like this, and I mean it literally, all hell will break loose on this earth. It will be a terrible, terrible time. Revelation 12, 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. In the midst of the tribulation, we see that there is a great battle fought in heaven. And this fought, the, uh, the dragon is, is uh, Satan here. And he's, as he loses this, bat, loses this battle, he's cast out of heaven. He turns all of his attention on persecuting Israel. And his purpose is to destroy the Jews. He cooperates with the Antichrist. 
And the Antichrist is the head of the re-established Roman Empire. And then there he cooperates with the false prophet, who is the head of the great religious system at that time. And these three make up the unholy trinity that will bring great destruction upon earth. Even today, we see the strengthening of armies in preparation for this time. This week, I just studied a little bit about the armies of the world, the rankings, where things are. And it's interesting to note in in my mind and heart, uh, some of the armies that are the strongest are the armies that are going to be seen in this battle of Armageddon. For example, uh, America is ranked number one in our military might. But right behind America is the country of Russia. Russia is ranked number two. And Russia is actually at a place of military might uh, where they were during the Cold War time. Many of you remember that season and the, the fear and all that was associated with the Cold War. Now, the only difference is that Russia doesn't have the number of people that it had during, uh, during the Cold War era. Then uh, I also looked up Egypt. Egypt is a growing force, and its armies are being helped with the help of Russia, and other, uh, other Islamic countries are also coming to their aid, including Turkey. But we also see even America is helping in some of these things to train their army to help grow, uh, grow their army. Remember, Russia's to the north, Turkey's to the north, Syria's to the north, to the south is going to be Egypt. Those the countries of the northern uh, African area. Then there is the armies to the east, and we see that these Asiatic countries, the Chinese army is one of the greatest armies uh, as far as number goes in the world. They are ranked number three in the world today, and uh, they are just behind Russia's number two spot. And so if you look at this, we have a Russia who's number two, China who's number three, both of them dumping uh, billions upon billions of dollars into the infrastructure to increase their technology and their advancement of their military might. For what purpose? For what end? I can't help but think that Daniel chapter 11 tells us what purpose and what end. Daniel 11 tells us that there will be a great battle that will be played. And we'll get to that in just a second as, as we look at this. But I want to just very mention, quickly mention that there is the, the location of the battle of Armageddon. If you look in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 20, we see that, that, uh, that there is a, there's going to be a time where this battle is fought. I think I got a little ahead of myself back there. Sorry, guys. But Armageddon is a reference uh, to the mountain of Megiddo, which is a beautiful geographic location in northern Israel. And it's a plain that extends from, uh, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the northern land of Israel. It's a gorgeous place. Now, Napoleon said that perhaps no other location in the world represents such a natural arena where the armies of the world might gather together in conflict. Napoleon said that. He wasn't, he wasn't a prophet. He was a, he was a military guy. And he said, this is a perfect place for a battle. What a coincidence that God, centuries before, said this will be where the battle takes place. The battle of Armageddon is not localized, but it really it just spreads out. But it begins here, and the Bible talks about what it's going to be like. Revelation 14, 20. Did you get that one up there? And look at, look at this description here. This is a very bloody clash in all that happens because the blood will flow to the height of the horse's bridle. And he says, And the winepress has, was trodden without the city, and blood came out on, of the winepress, even into the horse's bridles by the space of, a, of a 1,600 furlongs. Did you catch that? Blood will flow to the, the horse's bridles. 
What an incredible, gory picture here. Really, it's revolting to think of such carnage. And, and we think of that and we wonder, how in the world could God and what purpose does there serve for there to be such a bloodbath to take place in the world? I remember, remind you that there is a purpose in all of this. God will use the tribulation. God will use this battle of Armageddon to bring about the purpose uh, that's twofold, drawing the nation of Israel to Himself. He's never forgotten. He's never quit loving His people. He still cherishes them. And it will be at this time that He's bringing them to Himself. But also, He will be judging the world for their sins. He will be judging the world for their persecution against Israel. If you go all the way back, back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you see a promise from God, the Abrahamic covenant. And in that covenant, we see that God says, those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. This is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And those nations that have persecuted the Jews are finally gathered together in one place at this battle of Armageddon, and God's wrath is let loose upon them. He will, he will deal very harshly with those who do not treat His people fairly. Let me just say, I'm thankful for our nation. I'm thankful that in 1948, our president said, listen, I want to side with the nation Israel. We want to recognize her as a nation. We want to recognize her sovereignty. And I'm thankful that we have been able to align ourselves with her. Just a couple of years ago, on the 70th anniversary of Israel's birthday, our nation moved our embassy to Jerusalem, recognizing the capital and the right of Israel to be there. Do y'all recognize that, that significance there? This is a great thing that God has allowed us to see. And so these beautiful things that God is, is playing out for us today have great eternal significance for us here in preparation for this coming battle. I'm thankful that, and I believe that our support of Israel as a nation has allowed us to see God's blessing upon our nation in a tremendous way. But we see that the Armageddon will be a time where God will deal harshly with those who do not treat His people fairly, but also He deals with sin. Sin is running rampant in our world today. You say, no, pastor, you don't understand. It's always been bad. Yes, it's always been bad, but I say it's never been this bad. I don't think there's ever been a time in our country uh, when immorality has been so unrestrained as it is today. We have chosen to take good and call it evil and take evil and lift it up and call it good. We have chosen to, uh, to, uh, to take pastors who are working alone in their office without a mask on, heaven forbid, with no one else around and arrest them and find them and threaten to shut down their churches in America because they don't wear a mask. That's happening this week in America. That's called uh, calling good evil and evil good. No, or we take in Canada and we see the church who had, had the police because they have nothing better to do, I guess, and they blocked the church members from coming into their, their church property to, to have a parking lot service. That's, they, they're saying, listen, it is evil to congregate. We're not going to permit it. But then when rioters and looters gather together, it is allowed but not just allowed, it's celebrated. We, we bail them out of our jails. We say they're doing what they should. Or when sexual sins are worshipped and celebrated 
Listen, when we lit up the White House in the colors of pride, let me just say, I dare say, we have entered a time of great degradation and destruction is on the horizon. Which brings us to this next point, the participants of the battle. Verse 37 through 39 talks about this a little bit here. As he deals with it, he says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of men, women. And verse 38, But in his, his estate shall he uh, honor the God of the forces. We see his character, who he is, how he came up to being. And verse 40, And at the end of the time shall be the king of the south. Push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen. Remember, we're seeing these kings of the north and the south in play here. Remember those important characters we talked about just a few minutes ago? Russia, Turkey, Syria from the north. And then you have these kings from the south. Egypt, which is not insignificant, but still a, a plays a role here. And then those armies from the east that the Bible says in Revelation that, that God will allow the river Euphrates to dry up. So 200 million, did you catch that? 200 million from Asia would be able to march into Jerusalem for this final attack and assault on Israel. Listen, for some of our forefathers 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they would have looked at the figures that Revelation lays out and they would have said, where in the world do they get 200 million people coming out of the east? The Bible can't be right. This must be figurative. But today we see the population explosion of the last hundred years and we say, for us, it's no, 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 a no-brainer. You've got 7 billion people on this earth. It's going to be easy to find 200,000 to march, or 200 million to march against Jerusalem. And so... The question, though, for many of us is, where is America? We love America, right? I love my country, I love my people, but I read the Bible and I don't find us. <laughs> so where does all of this play into this? And let me just share uh, just a quote that I found from Dr. Dwight Pentecost, a, a good prophecy scholar, a guy I appreciate uh, his writings. He says, and I quote, Now what is our origin politically, socially, economically, linguisti linguistically? We have come from the nations that originally belonged to the Roman Empire. Our customs and laws have come from that European background, from nations that emerged out of the Roman Empire. I don't know, I'm, my family's from England. Guess where that's from? Part of the Roman Empire, all of that migrated there. Daniel speaks of these nations as the ten horns and the ten toes that will be brought together under the power and the authority of the beast. Even though we are not one of the ten by virtue of the fact that we did not emerge directly out of the old Roman Empire, we may be one of the ten by virtue of our heritage. The United States may well cast her lot with Europe and come into this confederation of nations and become part of that confederacy that will be drawn into conflict and will be judged by the Lord at His second advent. It is interesting to note that this confederation of the former Roman Empire nations includes almost all the nominal Christian nations. End quote. Listen, these words from Dr. Pentecost were written long before American leaders began to talk about a global economy, the Great Reset, uh, New World Order, or any of these things. Long before all of that happened, Dr. Pentecost said, listen, it could be that we're just going to come underneath the auspices of one of these other uh, nations here. And America's involvement in this confederation of nations is closer than, Pe than Pentecost would have ever predicted. What it's called, I don't know. There's been speculation. You can read all kinds of stuff on, online. I wouldn't advise it. But let me just say that we're seeing 
the, uh, just all of the pieces fall into play here. The second player involved is, uh, is the kings of the north. We talked about those, uh, Syria, Syria, uh, Syria, Turkey, and Russia. The third player is that of the kings of the east, Chinese, Japanese, uh, other Asians. And then we have the Lord and his armies as another player in this. The one that brings great victory, and we'll get to him in a minute because it's great to read this stuff. But finally, the last combatant is going to be the nation of Israel. And what's interesting to see here is that Israel seems to be passive. But it makes sense in a, motion, in a moment. Listen, right now Israel is ranked, though it's one of the smallest nations in the world, it's ranked number eight in military might. Did you catch that? Number eight. But at some point... It seems as if they become just an innocent bystander as the world comes through and wrecks havoc on their nation. Let's talk about some sequence of events very quickly. Uh, I want to draw this to a close this morning. The first and, and most important event for us is the rapture. We're looking forward to that great event. First Thessalonians 4 talks about it. We see that uh, the church will be in the, with the Lord as we uh, stand before the Lord at the beam of seat of Christ and then later enjoy the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be a glorious time in heaven for us during the tribulation. And then the Bible says that we'll return with Him uh, at, that, at this time of uh, the battle of Armageddon. But for those left behind, according to 927... Uh, Daniel 9.27, the next thing that happens is there will be a peace treaty signed between the Antichrist and Israel. And he makes a covenant with Israel to bring peace. It allows them to build their temple and they can start worship again. Remember a few weeks ago I mentioned that one of the things that Israel wants so badly is to worship in their temple once again. And guess what they're preparing even now? It's close. Amen. And so uh, we look at all of this. Uh, let, me, let me see. So that's the next big thing uh, is this peace treaty that will, be, that will happen. Now the peace treaty does it in, uh, something that's significant because it allows the Jews to become lethargic, almost passive. Instead of picking up their guns, they feel it's all over. And just as they are about to go to sleep in their peace, something major happens. And that starts in verse number 40. At the time of the end shall the kings of the south push at him. Kings of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, the chariots and the horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into the country and shall overflow and pass over. And we see all of these things happen and these great armies will be brought against Israel just about the time that they think they are just fine. Now grab your Bibles, look at Revelation chapter 19. And I want you to look there with me because this is so fun. This is like one of the greatest things to read together. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. So we look at the battle of Armageddon. We see these great armies of the, Lord, of the world that are coming against Israel. But there's something incredible that happens in Revelation 19 that John plays, just, just really lays out for us here in this moment. It's at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, the armies of the world are marching against Israel. And here comes Christ. And John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And him that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth go with a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath, hath on his vesture... And on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our Jesus. Amen. That's the glorious one that we serve. The one who comes at this moment, this, this most critical moment. And, and we see him victorious in this moment. And when all the nations are gathered together against Jerusalem, they will forget when they see the Lord come out of the sky they will forget that they are at war with each other and they will begin to fight against the Lord. And Revelation chapter 19 verse 21 re uh, records for us what will happen. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The Bible says immediately upon conquest, the nations will be established as his kingdom. What a glorious day that will be. And so God will begin that wonderful millennial reign of Christ. What an incredible thing that God has laid out for us in Scripture. And, and we could spend much more time than we have. But I want you to think about with me what season it is. This is not your traditional Christmas message. But with it comes the message of Christ. And think about his first coming. You see, when Jesus Christ came the first time, it looks like it put a pause on the timeline. And now we're living in what we call an age of grace. The time of the Gentiles is what Daniel calls it. And in this time, this age of grace, as we experience this opportunity of, of the church and to being able to pro, uh, uh, pronounce the gospel of Christ and share with the world the glorious news of salvation, I remind you that right now, this Christmas, we celebrate his first coming because it looks forward also to his second coming. And as we look at his first coming, he came meek and lowly as a babe in a manger. But when he comes that second time, he's going to come bold. He's going to come riding upon a great white horse. He's going to come as a conqueror, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. That's going to be our God. And Daniel's message is a reminder that God may delay his judgment, but he will not forget it. One of these days he will say, I've had enough. And we'll have crossed over that line from which there can be no repentance and no return. And we'll see Revelation chapter 16 and verse number 9. That what happens in the midst of this, this tribulation period. The men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God which had power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And that day people who knew it's God's judgment. Who knew that God was pouring out his wrath will not repent. But right now, there's an opportunity. You see, the message today is a message of hope. The message that Jesus Christ came to offer you and me hope in the midst of this. And God says, listen, I know you know these things are coming. You're now, you now see what, it, what the Word of God has to say. You now know that these things are coming. You know that there will be a great battle, a great conflict. But here's the reality right now. You can be on the winning side. 
You don't have to be on the side that goes through that. You don't have to be go through the side that is, that is destroyed and spends eternity in the lake of fire. But instead, God says today you can put your faith in the name of Jesus Christ and by Him you can be saved and be on your way to heaven eternally with Him forever and have a home with Him for all time. What a glorious promise God has made to you. That's the message of Christmas. It's not a message of Santa Claus and reindeer and those things. The message of Christmas is the message of hope. Don't wait. If I could, if I could do anything and stress anything with you today, it would be don't wait. Don't say, oh, I'll, I'll take care of this when I get older. I'll do this later. The message today is time is running short. Very soon, I believe that we're going to see some of these major events transpire. We cannot know the name, the date, the, name, the, the hour. We cannot know. I can't, I'm not going to begin to say what year it's even in. But this is what I know as we see the season approaching. It may be 50 years from now, but in time, God's time frame, that's still approaching. Amen? Amen? Let me just encourage you, church, don't quit in the midst of all of this. In the midst of, of all the COVID, in the midst of all that's going on, let me just encourage you right now, allow your faith to remain unshakable. Allow your faith in the midst of all this to say, God, I know that these things are coming. Help me to be found faithful in this hour. Lord, that you would help me to continue to love people and to continue to share Christ and continue forward by faith with the gospel of Christ. And, and if you're lost today, you don't know if you're going to heaven or hell, let me just remind you that Jesus Christ came so that you might have a, a home in heaven eternal for, with Him forever. That's the message for you today.